0: Let's turn again to Acts chapter 9. So we continue to look here at the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Uh, last time we saw how as Saul was headed there to Damascus. He has an encounter with the Lord. And uh, the Lord speaks to him and, and uh, he tells him to go into the city and basically wait for instructions. And so if we, if we pick up in... Verse 8, it says, And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man, but they led him by the hand, and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas, For one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth, and hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem, and here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And so Saul was told to go into the city and basically to wait. And when he had this encounter with the Lord, he loses his sight. He has to be led by the hand into the city. And so for three days... He's without sight, and um, not only that, he's not eating or drinking. Uh, so he's he's without sight, and he's he's fasting. He's just waiting for instructions from the Lord, and the Lord speaks to this man Ananias. Now, this is not somebody that we've encountered before in the Book of Acts. Um, there there was a man named Ananias. Previously, that you might remember, who uh, lied about some property and actually was judged by the Lord and put to death uh, for lying to the Holy Ghost. Uh, but this would be a different Ananias, obviously. Um, so this this is not one of the apostles. It is not one of those deacons of that church at Jerusalem. This is a, a disciple that we haven't encountered yet, which is which is interesting. Uh, here you have this. This man, Saul, and this very important event. And he's not sent to Peter or James or John. Uh, it's not Philip that speaks to him. Um, it's this, this disciple that we haven't heard anything about before uh, that's there at Damascus. And you see that Ananias is a little bit reluctant to go. I mean, he knows who Saul is, right? And he knows that he's come there with authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on the name of the Lord. Uh, so Saul is not coming there in secret. It's, it's known out there that he was coming for that purpose. And even though the Lord is here speaking to Ananias, Ananias is a little bit hesitant to go and, and talk to this Saul. But the Lord says something about Saul in verse 15. He says that he is a chosen vessel unto me. He says to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Now, if you've been following along through this study of the book of Acts, you know why that's an important statement. Because everything we've seen up to this point, it's always been Israel first. Um, In Acts chapter 1, when Christ is telling the the disciples to, first they're supposed to wait for power, and then they're going to go out and and, uh, tell people about Christ. And he tells them to go to Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Israel first. This is the first place where you see the Gentiles being put before Israel. You see, Israel's put last there. He's going to bear his name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. In fact, Paul is later going to be called the apostle of the Gentiles, and and so right from the beginning, it's not as if if uh, you know Saul's first purpose or first ministry was to go to Israel and then the Gentiles come later. Right from the beginning, God reveals that it's His plan for Saul to bear His name before. The Gentiles first, and kings, and finally the children of Israel. Um, let's let's uh, look at a couple of things. One one thing I mentioned at the end of the last lesson uh, had to do with Paul as a blasphemer. I want you to go over to First Timothy chapter one. Get get two passages actually. First, we'll go to Matthew chapter twelve, and then First Timothy chapter one. So Matthew chapter twelve and 1 Timothy chapter 1, because we need to understand uh, that there are some very important things going on here with, with Saul as far as the unfolding of God's plan of, of redemption and God's dealing with man. I want you to notice in Matthew chapter 12, verse 31, It's uh, this is Christ speaking. If you have a red letter Bible, these uh, words are in red here showing that it is the Lord himself speaking the words. Verse 31 says, Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world Neither in the world to come. Now this this uh, passage here sometimes is referred to as the unpardonable sin. okay? Now, if you were to ask individual people uh, what the unpardonable sin might be, they'll think of of you know very, very uh, bad things or wicked things that they would think would be unforgivable. Some people think suicide is a, an unpardonable sin, for instance. Um, maybe some people would say murder. Um, you know, maybe some people would say homosexuality or or whatever. None of those things are described as being unpardonable sins anywhere in Scripture. But this passage tells us about an unpardonable sin. And uh, Christ here is, is speaking at a time when people are blaspheming him. In fact, this is actually a response to... Um, Some people claiming that the things he was doing, he was doing by the power of the devil, which would be blasphemy against Christ. And he's warning them. He's saying, you can speak against me. That's what blasphemy is, to speak against. And uh, to blaspheme God is to speak against God. Um, he, He says, you can speak a word against the Son of Man, and there's still forgiveness for you. He's telling these people as they're blaspheming him, he's saying, you know, you shouldn't have said that but you can be forgiven for it but he's warning them that there was a time going to come when if they blaspheme the holy ghost if they speak against the holy ghost it will not be forgiven them and he says neither in this world neither in the world to come he's saying you're you're not going to be forgiven for it now or in the kingdom which means you're not going to get into the kingdom now that's a that's a very a very harsh statement for him to make now Blasphemy. At the time he spoke those words, blaspheming the Holy Ghost wasn't something you could do because the Holy Spirit wasn't present in the sense that he later would be. But at the Day of Pentecost, the the Holy Spirit is poured out there, and and it's Peter and you know these leaders at Jerusalem that are speaking by the Holy Ghost. Uh, Stephen in Acts chapter 7, he is speaking and he's full of the Holy Ghost. And, and even there, there's even a, a visual representation of that as it says that his, his face shone like an angel. And, and he's speaking filled with the Holy Ghost. And there's an opportunity there for people who had rejected Jesus in his incarnation, in his earthly ministry, to now believe the testimony of the Holy Ghost about him. But he warns them, If they blaspheme that Holy Ghost, if they speak against that ministry of the Holy Ghost, there will not be forgiveness for them. And and what you see early there in the book of Acts is you see some people that are kind of on the fence. They they see these miracles that Peter and others are doing. Uh, Even Gamaliel, Paul's teacher, is one of those, if you read some of the accounts uh, early in Acts, where he takes sort of a wait-and-see attitude. He says, "Let's, let's see what comes of this. And... He doesn't doesn't speak against the ministry of the Holy Ghost, but he doesn't believe it either. Okay? But then you see people who come to that point where they start speaking against that ministry of the Holy Ghost. There's a passage in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6, that often is is very confusing to people because they think it's teaching a loss of salvation, and it's really not teaching that at all. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6 says in verse 4, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again under repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now, There it describes somebody, the words it uses of the person it's talking about. It says they're enlightened. It says they've tasted of the heavenly gift. It says they were partakers of the Holy Ghost. They've tasted the good word of God. And it says a person like that, if they fall away, it says it is impossible to renew them to repentance. Okay? Now... People get confused about it because they read those descriptions, enlightened, partakers of the Holy Ghost, tasted the good word of God, and they think, well, that must be a saved person, and this must be somebody who loses salvation. But, but let me tell you that all of the language there as it's describing this person is very tentative. It, it says, for instance, when it says they were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, that word partaker, the word there means to go along with. It doesn't necessarily mean they have the indwelling Holy Spirit. It means they've encountered this ministry of the Holy Spirit and they've kind of gone along with it. Okay, yeah, I acknowledge something happened there. I don't think the person here it's describing is a believer at all. It's somebody who's experienced some of these things like what were taking place on the day of Pentecost uh, and, and after that and they're, they've tasted it. They haven't, they haven't believed it. They've just kind of gotten a taste of these things. And and the reason I believe that is because if you come down a, a little bit farther in the in the passage um if you, if you look at verse 9 the the author of Hebrews says but beloved we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation though we thus speak he warns about this person who could fall away and will never be be renewed to repentance and he says, but but you Hebrews that I'm writing to, he says, I'm persuaded better things of you, you have the things that accompany salvation, which would indicate that this person that falls away didn't ever have the things that accompany salvation. So who's he describing there? He's describing somebody like like we see Gamaliel early in the book of Acts, where he takes a wait and see attitude. He can't deny the things that he's seen, he, he acknowledges them, but he's not ready to believe them yet. And what If you view the verse in that light, what the verse is saying is somebody like that, when they come to the point where they reject that minute, they've taken a wait-and-see attitude, but then they decide, nope, I'm going to reject that. It says under, under this program that it's describing here that a person like that will never come to repentance. So... There were some people early there in the book of Acts that I think a verse like this would apply to. They take that wait-and-see attitude. They've tasted these things. They have some light available to them. But if they come to the point where they say, I'm, I'm not going to believe that, that person, it's, it's not so much that they they couldn't be saved, but it's saying that they'll never come to repent. Um, it's, it's like, for instance, when you read in the book of Revelation about people who take the mark of the beast. And it says somebody who takes the mark of the beast cannot be saved. You are not going to have large numbers of people who take the mark of the beast and then decide later, oh, that was a mistake. I want to believe on the Lord. When they take that mark of the beast, they're making a choice that there's no going back from. And they're never going to come to repentance. Okay? And... This unpardonable sin that Christ warned about, when they make that choice, they are blaspheming the Holy Ghost. They're saying, I am not going to believe this ministry of the Holy Ghost that I see. And now all these verses that we just looked at in Matthew and in Hebrews, understand they don't apply to the present dispensation of grace. We don't live under this program. This is a, a kingdom program that's being proclaimed here. And under that program, which was in place in the early chapters of the book of Acts, which will be in place again during the tribulation period, somebody's given space to repent. But when they come to a point where they make a, a, a choice against the truth of God, under, under that system, that person is never going to repent. All right? And um, that's, that's why it can be an unpardonable sin. Now, what gets interesting here is if we go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And notice some things that Saul says about himself, or Paul here. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 12, he says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Now verse 13. Who was before... A blasphemer, and a persecutor, and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit, for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now Paul says there that he was a blasphemer. Now we saw in Matthew 12 that there's some kinds of blasphemy that can be forgiven and other kinds that cannot be forgiven, right? Blasphemy of Jesus Christ himself, the person of Christ, can be forgiven, but at least under that, under that kingdom program, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven. So which kind of blasphemer is Paul or was Paul? We have no record in scripture of him blaspheming the Lord Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. We don't, Saul doesn't come on the scene until after the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. Um, Certainly, as he describes, you know, being brought up at the feet of Gamaliel, he would have been present there at Jerusalem. He wouldn't have been, he wouldn't have been um, unaware of the things that were going on with Christ. But uh, it seems like maybe that was a period before he rose to Prominence. He's certainly not mentioned by name in any of the four Gospels. Uh, So, who did he blaspheme? We don't have any record of him blaspheming the person of Christ in his earthly ministry. Where he's here persecuting the church is under that ministry of the Holy Spirit. If he was a blasphemer, he was blaspheming the Holy Spirit, speaking against the work of the Holy Spirit in this church that he was persecuting. And According to what we read in Matthew 12, that would be an unpardonable sin. There's no forgiveness for him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. But he says here, again, we started to look at this last time, that he obtained mercy. He says that in me first, Jesus Christ might show forth all suffering, for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. And the reason that Saul can be saved at all in Acts chapter 9 is is because Acts chapter 9 marks a dispensational change. Okay? Now, if you've never heard that term, uh, dispensation, um, you can go, for instance, to Ephesians chapter 3. And at least if you're using a King James Bible or certain other translations of the Bible, you'll see the word dispensation here in, in verse 2. Uh, you may also have the word administration or some other ways of it being translated. But uh, Ephesians chapter 3 verse 1, Paul says, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, notice for you Gentiles, right? He's my chosen vessel to bear my name before Gentiles. Here he says, I'm the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. If ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you word.'" So a dispensation is something that is dispensed. It's something that's given out. And God at various times has given out, he has revealed information about how he's dealing with men. And he has changed that from time to time. There was a, a period, for instance, before the Lord ever gave Moses the law. And uh, he says that sin is not imputed when there is no law. There were many things in the law of Moses that God never held anybody guilty for prior to the law because the law hadn't been given. So they weren't under that law. Now there were certain moral things certainly that had been given that they could be found guilty of. But there were many things in the law of Moses that when God reveals it to Moses, it's the first time he's told anybody about it. Now after God revealed it, then they're responsible for it. Okay, And so we can identify that as a dispensational change. Even though the word dispensation is never used in connection with that. But God was changing the way he was dealing with men. From that point on, he was going to deal with men um, based, at least in part, on this, this law that he had revealed to Moses. With Paul, we have a dispensational change as well. Here he refers to the dispensation, not of the law, but of the grace of God. And that's what you find revealed in Paul's epistles. When you read Paul's epistles, the books of Romans through Philemon in your Bible, you're going to find things that have never been revealed before. You're going to find things that you don't find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You don't find them in Acts. You don't find them in Hebrews through Revelation because they're part of a dispensation that was given to Paul. All right? And under that dispensation, which he calls the dispensation of the grace of God, there are some things that are different about salvation. Paul could not be saved under the previous dispensation. He couldn't be saved under what was being preached in Matthew chapter 12 or what's being preached in Hebrews chapter 6. Um, he, had, he had come to that point where he had blasphemed the Holy Ghost or as in Hebrews chapter 6, he had had light available to him, and fallen away from it, and it was impossible to renew him again to repentance. But the Lord steps in in Acts chapter 9 in, a, in an unprophesied appearing of Christ you know when when Christ leaves from the Mount of Olives at the beginning of the book of Acts and the disciples are told that in the same way that they saw him go he was going to come again that's the next time they're looking for Christ is when he comes again and sets his feet on the Mount of Olives which hasn't happened yet that's that's the next appearing of Christ that the scripture talks about it doesn't talk about him appearing to anybody on the road to Damascus. But in this unprecedented, unprophesied appearing of Christ, he appears to to Paul there. And what God has done at that point is he's changed something. He's changed something that now allows this blasphemer Saul of Tarsus to be saved. And he makes Saul of Tarsus, the chief of sinners, makes him the chief apostle of this new dispensation. He takes this person who was ineligible for salvation under the previous dispensation and shows that if God can save him, he can save anybody. There is no unpardonable sin today. There is no way that you can can make yourself ineligible under Matthew 12 or Hebrews 6 for salvation. You can be saved like Saul of Tarsus, who committed the unpardonable sin, was saved on the road to Damascus. And that's why Paul can say that in me first, Christ showed forth all longsuffering. Because Paul was the first of something new. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. And let me just just show you um, something here that maybe will help to make it it clear to you uh, regarding this present dispensation. Um, If you look at Ephesians chapter 2, here again Paul's talking about some of these dispensational changes. Um, in fact, in verse 11, he says, Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past, Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by that which is called the circumcision, and the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Okay, now there he's describing a previous dispensation where there was a difference between Jew and Gentile. That's why everybody we've seen uh, so far in the book of Acts who's come to the Lord has been either a Jew or a Gentile who's connected to Israel, who's joined. They're not a stranger from that, that uh, covenant or they're not aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Because there was a time where God set a difference between Jew and Gentile, Right? And so he says, remember that, that that's the way it used to be. But verse 13 says, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. The the major distinguishing characteristic of the dispensation of grace is that there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. That's that's the major characteristic. So if you're in a passage of Scripture where you see that there's no difference between Jew and Gentile, that's a pretty good indicator to you that you're in a passage that's dealing with the dispensation of grace. But if you're in a passage where it's placing a difference between the two, like we saw these these, uh, Jewish believers who were speaking to none but unto the Jews only, that sounds like a difference to me. There was a difference between Jew and Gentile. And that that can help you to distinguish some of these things. The indication in Acts 9, when it puts the Gentiles first, is that's where that change takes place. That's where the Gentiles are given a a new status. That's where uh, Israel, you could say, where they're they're cast away. Go over to Romans chapter 11. You can see in verse 11, speaking of Israel, it says, I say then, have they, Israel, stumbled that they should fall, God forbid, but rather through their fall salvation has come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? And then Paul says, for I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles. I magnify mine office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, and might save some of them. And, you know, in that previous dispensation, the way the Gentile came to God was by becoming like a Jew. Either through circumcision or or becoming a proselyte. All right? But notice here, Paul, as the apostle of the Gentiles, says he's trying to provoke Israel to emulate the Gentiles. It's turned right around. He says the Jews now to get saved you have to come to God as a Gentile because their their status as set apart from the nations has been taken away it's not that God no longer loves Israel uh, scripture says that, that they're beloved for the father's sakes and God still has a plan for Israel and God's going to, to uh, fulfill every promise that he ever made to Israel but for the time being he's dealing with the Gentiles and Israel comes to God just like a Gentile would it changes things around from what they were previously, and you see there Paul says he magnifies his office as the apostle of the Gentiles. That's what we see beginning in Acts chapter 9, and that's what we want to pay attention to as we continue on in the book of Acts, is we see here, you know, after we get out of chapter 9, it's still going to go back and talk about Peter a little bit, but by the time we get to the end of the book of Acts, it's going to focus exclusively on Paul and his ministry among the Gentiles, and so from this point forward, we're going to see two things going on at the same time. We're going to see Peter and the rest of the apostles at Jerusalem with their circumcision ministry, their ministry to Israel, and that is going to be diminishing. It's going to be it's going to be uh, passing out, and we're going to see Paul and his ministry increasingly to the Gentiles, and we're going to see that rising. We're going to see that becoming more and more prominent until, when we get to the end of the book of Acts, that'll be that'll be exclusive. Okay, and um, so those are the things we want to we want to pay attention to, and that's what is beginning here in Acts chapter nine. Hi, I'm Richard Church, the teacher here on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you've listened to our podcast today, and I would like to let you know that if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, you can contact me by email at richard at richardchurch.com or by telephone 608-339-9522. I also encourage you to check out our church website at www.friendshipbiblechurch.com.